1739, Scottish philosopher David Hume set out to chart the nature and limits of human knowledge. He published his theories and findings in what would become one of philosophy's most influential works, A Treatise of Human Nature. The book is famous for laying out a kind of modest skepticism about the extent of human knowledge, and in particular scientific knowledge, that has generated one of the most important and durable philosophical puzzles in philosophy of science. My name is Ned Hall. I am a philosopher at Harvard University, specializing to the extent that one has a specialty in philosophy in topics in philosophy of science and metaphysics. Hume was writing during the European Enlightenment, a period that emphasized reason and science as the basis for knowledge. Hume applied this approach to the human mind. Hume, I think, saw himself as trying to do for the mind what Newton did for the material world, trying to work out basic laws of human thought. And by careful and systematic application of those laws of human thought, come to a kind of comprehensive view about what we humans could and couldn't know. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Ned Hall to discuss David Hume's A Treatise of Human Nature. What what do we know about David Hume's life? Where did he come from? And how did he become so interested in philosophy? He was a Scottish Presbyterian. It's a little unclear from the historical record, but probably an atheist, although somewhat quiet about it, because that didn't exactly make you popular in Scotland at the time. Um, No, obviously very, very intelligent. Um, Early on, published the treatise in his early 20s, which was a kind of insanely ambitious attempt to get to the bottom of the nature of human understanding and, and human knowledge. In his own words, that book um, quote, fell stillborn from the presses, close quote. But he later on made a very, very successful career for himself. Um, he was a very widely read and successful historian, in fact, wrote histories of England that were you know, probably his most popular works during his lifetime. So in a way, his philosophical work is not at the time what brought him renown in the way that his um, historical work did. Um, but he went on to sort of revisit the topics that he addressed in that early work and later works, which uh, have all become classics, like The Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding is one. Another work which, by his um, intention, was published posthumously and is also justly famous as the Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. And that's probably exhibit A for thinking that he's an atheist, because he kind of puts the boot into a lot of arguments for theism there. Um, he was... I think at various points tried to secure kind of academic positions at the University of, I'm going to mispronounce this, Edinburgh, uh, but was rebuffed because of concerns about like his, you know, theological stances. Um, There are other things that are less savory that have come out about him, which I think are sort of fair to note. Like many people at his times, he's like pretty overtly racist too. Um, uh, And in ways that may have had some practical effect. So for us nowadays, I think properly, when we sort of think about these authors, it's sort of good to think about them in the in 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 total, right? Not to lionize them or sort of set them up as these heroic figures. Like he had plenty to to contribute, and his writing is incredibly stimulating. And you know, he's also flawed in some pretty deep ways. 
So let's let's get into the text now. Um, what what is the treatise about, and w- what was it trying to address? So one thing that's good to keep in mind is that there's a lot of youthful ambition in the treatise, and it was written after Newton's work had become known and famous. Sir Isaac Newton was an English polymath who lived in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. He is most famous for his discoveries about the natural world. He formulated the laws of motion and gravity that laid the foundation for modern physics, and he outlined some of the basic laws of nature. Hume followed in his footsteps, but instead of looking outward at the physical world, Hume turned his gaze inward on the human mind. So the aim of the book is I'm going to give you the laws of thought um, with sort of central applications so that we can understand better the nature of mathematical knowledge, the nature of um, perceptual knowledge, the nature of scientific and empirical knowledge, which is the where the problem of induction really comes in. What is the problem of induction? How do we justify the basic principles on the basis of which we make any prediction about what the world is like? Um, now, it might not be obvious why there's a problem there, but what Hume noticed is that very roughly, very roughly, when we make, say, predictions about the future, um, about what the weather will be like tomorrow, you know, as, as it may be, we typically do so on the basis of evidence. In fact, we think it's rash, maybe even irrational, to just make some random prediction about the future on no basis at all. That strikes most of us as unscientific. And now, if we ask what kind of reasoning process underlies that process of making a prediction, that very mundane, everyday phenomenon of making a prediction about the future. A core part of that the reasoning process seems to be our allegiance to some principle of the form nature overall, past, present, and future is uniform in its operations. Perhaps in the past, you've seen dark clouds followed by rain. So when you see dark clouds again, you assume that rain might be on the way. Perhaps you've been near a fire in the past, and you felt that it was hot. So when you see a fire again, you assume that it will be hot. So we take the past to be a guide to the future, and we take it to be a guide in a, in a way that's sort of deceptively simple to describe, but harder to unpack, which is we think the future will be like the past in relevant respects. Um, and now Hume asks, well, why do we believe that principle? Why do believe we believe that nature is uniform? And he notices that that very claim about the world has a curious status. On the one hand, it's not a truth of logic or mathematics. I can't just sit down from the armchair and through like really, 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 really clever, deep thinking, come up with some like absolutely conclusive proof that the world we inhabit operates in a uniform manner across space and time. On the other hand, if it's a principle or a claim about the world that we learn from experience then we seem to be involved in a kind of circularity. Think of that fire again. If you put your hand over the fire, you know it will hurt because fire is hot. But how do you know it will hurt? How do you know fire is hot? You know because you have felt it in the past. So to form your prediction about the future, you are relying on past experiences. This is called inductive reasoning. But Hume saw a problem with this way of thinking. You can only rely on experience if the world is orderly enough for you to rely on experience. But the only way to know if the world is orderly is if you can rely on experience. So according to Hume, this whole way of understanding the world means we're caught in a circular trap. 
You're trying to justify inductive reasoning with inductive reasoning. And Hume didn't think that that was possible. Now, of course, the prediction would be correct. Fire is hot and the flame would hurt our hand. So relying on past experiences does save us from potentially harmful situations in the future. Hume wouldn't disagree, but what he did notice with this thought experiment is that there is a limit to our human knowledge. I think he's pointing to something deep about the presuppositions we make in even everyday encounters with the world and attempts to figure out what it's going to, you know, bring next. But as for what the aim of the book is, it's nothing less than I will chart the nature of human cognition and in doing so tell you what its limits are. In Hume's time, people thought of the mind in a very different way than we do today. Now we tend to think of at least people in the academy, in psychology departments or neuroscience departments, tend to think of having a mind as having a certain kind of complicated physical organ as part of your body. And there's still plenty of very, very, very hard problems to work out if you want to flesh out that view. So for us, the kind of way that the mind-body relation has been configured has shifted so that the mind is now a sort of locus of these problematic things, problematic because we need to fit them into a, a sort of physical worldview. And that wasn't necessarily the view back then. Um, it certainly wasn't a dominant view. I think you could probably find that view. But you could also find the view of which Hume is an example, which says, no, you really have to start with the mind. Um, and Hume's own philosophy ends up making the physical world look like something like, you know, an illusion that we project onto our, the course of our experience so as to make more systematic sense of it. Hume's contemporaries believed that the physical world and the mental world were two different things. The nature of mentality wasn't just viewed as like one little special niche topic within the sciences, the way it is now. Like you look at the academy and you've got physics, chemistry, biology, you know, um, climate science, like neurophysiology, there's one a little bit, like psychology that's sort of connected. You no, know, that way of thinking about the where the mind fit into the study of the world was not at all present back then. Like it, back then it would make sense to say, um, to start out in a way that seems crazy ambitious to us now, or maybe just misconceived, oh, I'm going to figure out the laws of thought, the basic laws of thought. How did he go about trying to discern those laws? And, and what is his major argument in the text? So he does something that is kind of ingenious. Um, and to put it into view, we have to sort of step back and talk a little bit about the skeptical side of Hume. Um, when you read him, and this is part of what makes reading him so dizzying, you will find passages where he is really extolling the use of reason. It says, reason is great. And then you find these other passages where he seems to be, you know, utterly skeptical, almost to the point of nihilism about what reason can teach us. One kind of important kind of corollary to that skepticism about what reason can teach us is a very, very deep skepticism, which is he's consistent about, about whether armchair reasoning can teach us much of anything. Hume believed that this type of reasoning, which is achieved through pure thought, can lead us to some basic conclusions, such as analytic truths. The most famous example of an analytic truth in philosophy is the phrase, all bachelors are unmarried. By definition, a bachelor is an unmarried man. All unmarried men are unmarried, 
so all bachelors are unmarried. This is a true statement that can be arrived at just by thinking about the problem. But anything substantial about the nature of reality or your place in it, that has to be thoroughgoingly empirical. You know, you need to collect evidence and reflect on the evidence and sort of work out what it's telling you in order to form a view. And so his own method with respect to the mind is empirical. You know, he claims to come up with some of the laws that he a- announces that, um, for example, that that thought, what one of the principles that thought uses is, according to him, is association. When you're, When you have one idea before your mind, that will tend to call to the mind ideas that are similar to it in some way. Um, um, and there, uh, there are other laws, too, that are never nearly as cleanly spelled out as Newton's, but they're there. But his method of coming to them was really to ask himself, like, well, if I just look at how my mind works, what principles seem to make the most sense of it? Um, it seems to me that when I think, like, there are ideas before my consciousness, and if I'm trying to explain what principles govern the flow of ideas, well, they're principles like association, you know, similarity between one idea and the next, um, or um, space and time. I tend to, if I tend to think of one thing, I, that will naturally draw my mind to thinking of things that, that are near to it, or really he means that I think are near to it, which is a complication. But, um, and then the other one is cause and effect. Now, my, I've been habituated by my experience to expect certain things upon seeing certain other things. Like I expect that if I put my hand on near the hot fire, it will hurt as a really simple example. Um, and so these are like three of like classic Humean laws, which he thinks he arrives at empirically. Um, and so there's a kind of elegant internal consistency, at least to the effort. Like here are these like this, this ambition to come up with laws that are going to like tell you what the limits of human knowledge are, among other things. How did you come up with them? Well, um, by a method that respects those very limits. No. Because according to him, those laws will just vindicate the view that we can't learn much from the armchair. Um, and so, good. He'd better have a story about how he comes up with them that doesn't require much work from the armchair. So, wh- what what is he saying about cause and effect, and why does that seem so counterintuitive? And, you know, is he right about, like, the impossibility of knowing cause and effect? I think he's right that it's way more complicated than people tend to think. Um, um so if we sort of zero in on on just cause and effect, um, as opposed to like the general question of how we predict things, one question that's going to be uppermost for Hume that runs throughout um, the treatise, throughout the book, is the question, um, where do our concepts come from? Now, part of Hume's kind of focus on, on the empirical convinces him, and this is announced right at the beginning of the of the treatise as like a, a basic methodological point, um, convinces him that um, the, the only place our concepts can come from is our own um, kind of conscious impressions. So he says, look, I, there's this observable difference between I. Um, impressions which are extremely vivid and have a lot of vivacity and ideas which are often faint. And he endorses what he calls a copy principle, which is if you have an idea, something that you can sort of call to mind at will and think by means of which, that idea must have had its source in an impression. And you can feel some intuitive force for this. Like someone, for example, who 
was, say, blind from birth in a way that that deprived them of any visual experience at all, um, we think might not have any concept of color. No, they might hear the word and they might be able to use it fluently in conversation with other people. But you might think like there's a sense in which like the concept of red is something they can't grasp the way normally sighted people can. Um, and you can think of Hume as kind of generalizing that principle. And now you think, okay, um, whether or not you agree with the principle, you should think it's a good question. How do we come by our concepts? And how do we come by, say, our concept of causation in particular? What is it to think of that transaction between the billiard balls as not merely a succession of events, but one with a kind of causal nexus where the, the impact makes the second billiard ball move, like causes it to move? And Hume thinks he can convince you that, that when you really try to investigate where that concept comes from, you'll find an answer, but it won't be the answer you expected. Imagine you're playing pool and you hit the cue ball. The cue ball then rolls across the table and strikes the eight ball, which then rolls into the corner pocket. The obvious way to read the situation is that the cue ball hit the eight ball and caused it to roll into the corner pocket. Cause and effect. Hume says that this experience shows us two parts. Part A is that you hit the cue ball and it rolled and struck the eight ball. Part B is that the eight ball rolled toward the corner pocket. But according to Hume, these experiences are not necessarily connected. Our mind is the thing that combines them. For all we know, these two parts could be unrelated, but have always occurred together in that order. This is what Hume calls constant conjunction, two parts that are always seen together. Hume believed that our minds add something to this situation that connects these two parts. We assume cause and effect, but in reality, all that our experience has shown us is the occurrence of part A followed by part B. Hume didn't really believe that the cue ball didn't cause the eight ball to roll into the corner pocket. But what this shows us is that our mind fills the gaps in our experience. We cannot assume anything we know with any kind of certainty because we cannot see the glue that holds the two parts together. It's controversial how to read Hume here because he's not perfectly clear on my reading of him. What he's trying to get us to see is that that psychological expectation is not answering to anything in the world beyond mere constant conjunction. So if you want to see, find some extra ingredient out in the world that, never mind how we think about things, out in the world, these things are really connected in a way that two things that are merely correlated or not, if that's your goal, he thinks that's hopeless. It's not just that it's hopeless, you're like you literally have no idea what you're talking about because you never observe that extra glue or that extra connection. No. Um, and nothing in your experience could serve as a source for the idea of that extra necessary connection. And that's quite radical. I mean, if you know, you could do a like little experiment with yourself. You could like like take, you know, something like this cap. I'm holding up this a cap and I'm about to let go of it. And I can't help but expect that it's gonna fall. In fact, the way I think about it is not just that in as a matter of fact, when I let it go, it's gonna fall. Here, see it just did. But in fact, it had to. It had to fall. No, it was, it was guaranteed to fall given the physical circumstances. Given its physical circumstances and gravity, there was nothing that could happen but that it fall, right? All that, that, that modal talk about it had to fall. There's nothing that could happen but that it fall. It's very natural for me to think that that talk answers to something in the world. 
you know, that I'm correctly, by use of that talk, describing some feature of that little episode that goes beyond the mere fact that I let go and it did fall. Right. And that, on my reading of Hume anyways, is just a deep mistake that we can't make any sense of what that extra ingredient is. And I should say that element of Hume, along with the problem of induction that we talked about before, has had incredible staying power. People nowadays in philosophy who worry about, like, what's causation or what are laws of nature, you know, because um, in a way, those turn out to be, um, at bottom, the same topic um, here, at least, um, really worry about, like, well, if, if we think by calling something a law of nature, we're doing something that goes beyond simply saying it always holds, what is that? What could that extra thing be? No. Um, and the worry stems, traces back to Hume. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, it raises so many questions. Um, Hume's own view, by the way, just to interject here, is that if, if you think too long and hard about these things, it'll get you depressed. And at some point, you need to take a break and go down to the pub with your friends and have a pint. And he was actually pretty <laughs> serious about that. <laughs> That's pretty sensible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could you start to tell us about? How has how have his ideas entered the world? How have they changed the way we think about science or our minds or, or any other questions? So Einstein, in developing his theory of relativity, said that he was explicitly influenced by Hume. And it's not so much Hume on causation. It's more the Hume's technique of asking, how is your concept of X, whatever X is, grounded in experience? No. So... So there's something very liberating about that, um, that move. No, you say you have some like central concept that organizes the way you theorize or think about some subject matter. Great. Tell me where that concept came from, how it's anchored in the kind of empirical experience you've had. Um, and what's liberating about that is like it allows you to play around with other ways to fashion a concept that might be better grounded in your experience than the one you started with. Um, and there are all sorts of areas in which that can be highly liberating. But for for um, Einstein, at least by his own admission, it was thinking about the concepts of space and especially time and, and motion and velocity. Like, how do we think about those? Hume opened the door for questioning our experiences and thus questioning our most basic assumptions. And so for Einstein, that was liberating in just the way he needed to be liberated. Hmm. What aspects of life today that we encounter in ordinary talk and ordinary thinking do do you find resonant with Hume's ideas? Like in what way did he build the way did he build our common sense? So I think one thing he definitely helped to do is build up the the kind of the central importance that many people think just empirical experience has. Um, that's a kind of lasting legacy that was also promoted by other people like Locke, certainly. Um, and, and I'm sure it was in the air, you know, um, but the, the kind of modesty about what we can find out about just relying on our own sort of raw cognitive powers, the deep modesty about that is, I think, a lasting legacy. And it's not like it's universal, um, but but you see traces of it in just the thought, like, look, if I if I announce something, it's often appropriate to say, well, like, what's your evidence for that? No, like, can you show me the data, and so on. And 
No, that kind of approach that can be used as a bludgeon and it can be sort of, it can dumb people down as much as elevate them. But that's something that I, I see is like the kind of intellectual humility and modesty um, coupled with a kind of sort of deep reliance on on experience as a guide to, you know, what the reality that we share is like. David Hume paved the way for contemporary cognitive science, influenced countless other philosophers and scientists, and gave us a framework for understanding how experience shapes what we know. Hume expanded our understanding of the mind and opened the door to even bigger questions on the nature of human knowledge. But his skepticism and the questions he raised regarding inductive reasoning remain a puzzle to this day. We still can't quite justify how we know what we know. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.